Amen. You may be seated. Well, two weeks ago, we began a new series. Technically, on the attributes of God. But the reality of it is that it's really bigger than that. It's really on the, the subject of knowing God. And I begin by talking about the illustration of an ocean in the beach. And talking about how many people talk about the ocean. They talk about the, the wonders of the ocean. But they've never been to the ocean. They factually know about an ocean. They've read about the ocean. They might have looked on Wikipedia about the ocean. They may be able to tell you the salt content of the ocean. They may be able to tell you the tides and the, you know, how they come about. And I was thinking about Ben and I last night coming back, and we were talking about the different uh, energy sources and stuff like that. And one of the things that they're looking at using is the tidal. Uh, what, did, what did you call that, Ben? Tidal generators. And um, anyways, using the tides coming and going to, to, to process energy. And so there are probably um, engineers who can go through the whole physics of it all and understand all that, but they've still not ever been to the ocean. They never have experienced the ocean. And that's the way it is with God. God is like that ocean. And many people say they know God. They, they, they know of God. They can tell me a little bit about God. They may understand that God is the judge. They may understand that God is the creator, but they don't know God. And there's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. You can see I have verse John 17, verse 3, where Jesus gives us a definition of what eternal life is. And Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they may know you. Gnosko, that they may experientially, relationally know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Life eternal, eternal life is summed up by having a relationship with the one and only true God. God and God alone. And through Jesus Christ, who was the manifestation, the physical manifestation of God. And so to Philip, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks when we talk about the Trinity and we talk about the deity of Christ. But to Philip, this is what I said to say for now, he said, Philip said, show us the Father and it'll suffice us. It'll, it'll be sufficient. And Jesus said, have I been so long with you? And you haven't recognized me? And Thomas, who, who saw Jesus and fell at his feet and said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't rebuke him. And so life eternal is knowing the only true God. And that word and in the Greek, chi, can also be translated even as a um, descriptor. And so there is parts of me that really believe that this doesn't say two people. This actually says one and the same. This is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, even Jesus Christ, whom you sent. And so we talked about, then, two weeks ago, about part of this pursuit and, and knowing God is really to, to know Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul said that his pursuit was that I may know him in the power of his resurrections and in the fellowship of his sufferings. And so he said, I forget the things which are behind and I reach toward the things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. You cannot be, allow yourself to be entrapped by the failures of your past. 
the hypocrisies of your past. I clearly am not a perfect individual. I'm not God. So by default, that means what? I'm not perfect. That means I've failed. That means I've stumbled. That means I've sinned. And if you knew me well, like God knows me well, you know the grossness of who I am. But that's where we're told as well, but grow in the grace and knowledge, gnosko, the, the gnosis, the intimate knowledge, the, the relational knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You have to be able to set aside who you have been, who you think you might have been, and that's either bad or good, so that you can come fully to know the true God. Now, as we then go into this concept of knowing God, there are two, um, two questions or two integral parts that beg us to, to talk about because of the society and the culture that we live in. We are increasingly living in a society and a culture that is ungodly. Now, I don't say that as a character trait. I say that as a, as a focused trait. We are living in a culture that does not believe in a God. I don't even want to say atheistic, because even atheism really gives some credence to um, that there, there's a God or not. We'll talk about that in just a second here. But, but we're in this culture that is battling between atheism and multiculturalism, which is really a, a package of polytheism, and that is having many gods. And the fact that you have many gods, it means that no god is any god, if that makes sense. I hope it does. So you, you've got this, this nothingness over here called atheism, and you've got this watered-down nothingness, which is called polytheism, where that says that all gods are what? The same, and that there are many ways that in it. So, so the, the, the two integral points that I believe that, that must be defined going into this, and so this may be uh, an honor to many of you, but I hope it's not because we're, we're supposed to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us. And this is exciting stuff to me, so it's got to be exciting to you because it's exciting to me. Anyways, um, and that's not how I really mean it. But, but that is, first of all, that there, the existence of God, that there is a God. First, well, Does that make sense? If you want to know God, then that begs the, the, the question, is there really a God to know? And so, I gotta, is there a God? How do I know there's a God? Secondly, if there is a God, and I'm not using big G, that there is God, okay, but that there is a God, which God? Is there potential that there are many gods? Remember, we have this, you know, Buddha, and we have um, all the Hindu gods, and we have Allah, and, and all these things, and so and maybe it's me, maybe it's my inner person. You know, who is this God that I'm supposed to, to know? And so, technically, what I want to look at is the existence of God, and then the exclusiveness of God, and that he is God, and that he's God alone. Today, as I went through this, I, my, my goal going into this for, for the past couple months was that this was going to be one message, but as I, 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 as I got wrapped into this again, uh, there's no way. There's just no way. So I, so I proactively picked a spot to cut it at, and, um, and so... And, we're gonna, and that's in the midst of the existence of God, and we're going to pick that up again next week, um, Lord willing. Um, I'll be here, and you'll be here. Um, in, well, actually, Lord willing, he'll come this week, right? And we'll, we won't have to worry about me trying to tell you about the existence of God because we can be in the presence and, and really get the fullness of it. That'd be really awesome. Um, 
And my faith will become sight. When it, when it, what, what, what day that's going to be? I, I really look forward to it, and, and all this is going to be moot stuff, you know? Um, but we want to look then at the... That, um, at, at God. Now, this is important because in our culture today, again, as I've said about this atheism and stuff, and I, I forgot I had the slide up here, but it's an important slide. Does anybody know who, who that guy in the picture is? Charles Darwin. Good job, Christopher. That's right. So there's Charles Darwin. In, in, in the upper right is the God Delusion book by Richard Dawkins, who is the modern-day version of Charles Darwin. Okay? They are ones who are, are seeking to disprove that there is a God. Okay? They, in other words, that there is no God, that we're all products of what? Evolution. Okay? Now, we're, 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 we'll, we'll, time and chance and circumstance. Yeah. And, and so we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But there's also this guy called Friedrich uh, Nitzke. Okay? Does anybody know who Friedrich Nitzke is? He's the guy who said, God is dead and... We killed him. <laughs> Anyways, but back in 1966, on the cover of Time magazine, there was this, this provocative cover at that time. And it says, is God dead? And it was very provocative at the time. And, um, and the world is, is there trying to say that, well, well, maybe there was a God, but he is like the big clockmaker. He just wound it up and got it going, and he since has died, and now we're just left to our, ourselves. Okay, so we're we're living in this in this realm where people are just doing it. So we want to then look at this existence of God, and the exclusiveness of God as we go. And we're going to start with the existence of God, looking at the biblical argument, the cosmological argument, and then the spiritual argument. Okay, now those are really big words. Okay, but we'll talk them as we go. And I'm going to, as we talk about the cosmological argument, I'm using it differently than. You would find it if you went to Wikipedia or whatever, okay? And we'll talk about why I do it that way. But first, the biblical argument. Now, I want to state right up the fact that, for me, I'm a presuppositionalist. Does anybody know what that big word means? What's a presuppositionalist? I, I presume. I, I, I'm presupposing that the Bible is true. And so, therefore, when I argue, if you would, when I debate, when I talk to somebody my initial reaction always is going to be that I'm going to use the Word of God to state my point. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Okay? Now, that talks about apologetics. Okay? Apologetics is not apologizing to people, saying you're wrong. Apologetics is actually the word that is in 2 Peter 3, where it says, be ready to give an answer, a defense for the hope that's within you. That is the Greek word apologia. Okay? And so what apologetics means is giving a defense or giving an answer for things. Okay? It's not apologizing for the fact that you're a believer, that you believe, I'm sorry, I believe in God. No! Here's why I believe in God. Here's what I know about it. Now, from Bob then, Bob is going to always start off with the Bible. But I, have to, but I have to honestly state that I know that the biblical argument is a cyclical argument. Do you understand that? I mean, I'm saying the Bible is true because the Bible says so. I'm saying God is true because the Bible says so. Do, do you understand? I mean, it's, that's not what the world wants to hear. The world wants to know, you know, they don't believe in the Bible anyway, and so they want to know that there's a God apart from the Bible. But for Bob, Bob's always going to start, whether they want to hear it or not, Bob's always going to start with the Bible. Why? 
Because it's the Word of God. And it's the Word of God that's quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it's the Word of God that's able to divide us under between the, the, the bone and the marrow, between the soul and the spirit, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So as long as I give the Word, if, as long as I give God's truth, you know, that's what's going to be the most powerful. And, and we're told in the book of Isaiah that the Word of God is going to come and it's going to accomplish whatever God sent it forth to accomplish. But Bob's words are empty. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. And so my prayer many times is, God, as I speak your word, Lord, I pray that the things which were of Bob, you, you just blow away like the chaff. But the things which were of your spirit and the things which were of your word, that you take your word and you, and, you, and you supplant it in somebody's heart. So I would encourage you to do that. That means that you're memorizing God's word. It means that you have a daily intake of God's word. So that when you talk to somebody, that you can share with them God's word. Okay? Now, so what does the Bible say? What's the biblical evidence that there is a God? Well, you don't have to go any further than the first verse, right? Because the first verse says, in the beginning, God. No, not in the beginning was, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God, what? Created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the face of the earth, and, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, right? And then God said... Let there be light. And then God, 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 and then God. You know, God is referred to well over 4,400 times in the Bible. There's a theme there, wouldn't you say? In 66 books, he's used well over 4,400 times. Now, that's not even talking about the word Yahweh, the Lord. That's just the word God. The existence of God. Okay? That, that God in existence is there. In, in the book of Psalms, chapter 90, and again, or the 90th Psalm, and again, there are so many. I'm using just two, okay? Because clearly, <laughs> the Bible's replete, and we know that. You're, I mean, it's a no-brainer, I guess, in the sense that you're here. You, you, you know there's a God, that's why you're here, okay? But, clearly in Psalm 90, we say, Yahweh, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And when we talk about the nature of God and his eternalness, we'll come back to this verse as well. But the fact is, the Bible assumes, right off the bat, that God is real, that God is true. Does that make sense? I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? Now, from this point, we're going we're gonna, to we'll look at a verse here or so, but we're going to be moving away from a lot of, I hate messages where we move away from the Bible, because the Bible is, you know, I'm an expository preacher, and I like to just teach from the Word of God. But, um, as we look at the existence of God, again, I could look at a bunch of verses, okay? But what I want to do is I want to paint a picture that's broader than just the written Word. Why? Because as we look to the cosmological argument, okay, we read in Romans chapter 1. Now, the cosmological argument is going to be looking at nature itself, okay, and we'll talk about what I mean by this in a second. But in our reading this morning, we read from Romans chapter 1, and if you look at what I have up here on the screen, a little portion of Romans 1 from verses 18 to 21, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be relationally, intimately known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. Stop for a moment. Think about this. God says the truth of his existence has been made manifest to every person. And so what may be 
intimately, relationally known about God, that, that God is there and he desires to have a relationship, that he has actually placed it in man to know it. But that man has chosen to do what? To suppress it. To, to push it down and say, no, it's not true. Well, logically, you have to stop there if you're, if, and say to yourself or ask yourself what? How? How? Well, we go on. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. That's a big word there. It's so that they are without excuse because although they, not oida God, not factually knew about God, but because they can noscode God, because they intimately, relationally knew God, they did not glorify him as God. And then we read about how they exchanged the glory of God for the, for the glory of, of the four-footed beast and something like that. In other words, we, and so we have made God in our own image, if you would. Okay? Whether it's bowing down to worship a totem pole, whether it's bowing down to worship different figurines, or, whether, or if it's bowing down to my own heart to worship myself. Idolatry is making God in an image that I want him to be like in doing that. And so you don't have to have a... a, a uh, uh, an actual totem pole that you are bowing down to to be an idol worshiper. But as um, um, Michael Card says in one of his songs, we've made you in our image, and so our faith is idolatry. And that's talking about believers who come in the church. We, we want to make God put them in, in our box. We, you know, we have this little box called, and we're going to call it um, God's container. You know, not that the box is God, but that it's God's container. We keep him in the box so that God is predictable and, and he's, 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 a, he's, a, he's a good pet, you know? It's kind of like an Aladdin's lamp. Every time I need something, I just do what? I rub the lamp just a little bit and, and I let God out of the lamp so that he can meet my every need and want. And that's not God. It's not God. And so, so note what it says, though. So how, then, does mankind know? Not just factually know, but how can mankind relationally know that there is a God out there who loves them and cares about them? Just the very nature itself. Very nature itself. And so I want to talk about this cosmological, cosmos, okay, um, thing. Psalm 19, we see that the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day, utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the world and their words to the ends of the world. This morning we sang, this is my father's world. You, you know the song? You sang it, right? So, I mean, hopefully you believe it because you sang it. This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. Do you know what that line is talking about? We sing it all the time. Not all the time, okay, once, once a year, maybe twice a year. But do you know what, that's, what, what you're singing, or are you just singing words? Come on now, be careful of yourself. You've got to be careful what you sing, right? You're taught a lot. The planets are spinning in space, right? Anytime you have movement through air, you have some level of friction, when you have that friction, you have a resonating resonance, which brings some sort of tone. So, like if you rub your fingers over the the um, the um, chair here, it's soft, but but there's a sound there. If I run it over the these things, 
I have a different sound. There's friction. The friction is causing it. So the, the, actually the spheres are making noises. We don't hear them. But to God, potentially, there is a symphony happening. So all nature sings and around me rings the music of the spheres. And so that his nature, the heavens declare it. If one would just look with an open mind and with a heart that wants to know truth and not suppress it. Now, the universe is referred to as the word cosmos in the Greek. And that's where we read in John 3.16, For God so loved the cosmos. God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only begotten son. And so when you looked on um, the, um, the show that, oh, he's passed away now. Thank you. Carl Sagan did. It was called Cosmos. And uh, what Cosmos actually means is world order. The verb form of it means put in order. I think it's an interesting thing because many women this morning, before you came today, I know you call them lipstick and rouge and all that kind of stuff, but if we place it all together, we call that stuff what? Cosmetics. Do you know what cosmetics are? It's you woman trying to put yourself in order. Anyways, um, <laughs> men, on the other hand, don't need cosmetics. Anyways, I, so uh, now I get myself in trouble. Anyways, so that's a joke. But, but the reality is that's really where the, the root of the word comes from. It really does mean that. It, it means putting in order, putting it together in order. So if you feel that you're in order, you know, you don't need all that stuff. Marsha always asked me, what's my favorite you know, perfume or whatever. I said, the one you're wearing, she said, I'm not wearing one. I said, that's exactly right. I married you. I didn't marry the perfume. So, um, it is a good answer. I don't, I don't care about the, I don't care about lipstick and all that kind of stuff. I love my wife, you know. I, I love who she is. I, I don't need all the painted stuff on her to, to make me love her. And, um, I mean, because, well, we, that's a side subject. It's not, not here. I, that's a rabbit trail I can get into. But anyways, so the universe, by def definition, is something that has what? Order. The universe is comprised of numerous solar systems, each comprised of numerous galaxies. Now, this is important. So this word cosmological argument that I'm looking at is the fact that there is order in the universe, that there is order out there, and the fact that there is order that's there means that there has to be an intelligent designer, if you would. That's the, the buzzword today, right? But there has to be a creator there has to be some intelligence that has placed all these things together. And as we look at just a, a, a smattering of this, you're going to say to yourself, you know, I, I, to me, the more I study, this is one of my pet peeves. When I first got saved, I believed in evolution. And I remember sitting at the table with Pastor Woody, my, my mentor, and Barry Quartz, who many of you met last July. He was here as the, Argen, the uh, missionary to Argentina. And, uh, and so I've known Barry for I don't know how many years, well, Back in 84 is when I got saved, so I've been in fall of 84. And I remember fighting till I was blue in the face for evolution. I knew I was wrong. I knew I was had. And, but I, but I, but I you, know, you, don't, you don't admit you're wrong. And so, and so it became a pet peeve of mine. You know? And so I started studying and reading and, and researching on this thing. And, and the more I research, the more I study on this stuff, the more I slap myself up the side of my head that I could ever believe in evolution. That I would believe the lie the lie. Because the lie, and again it goes back to Charles Darwin and Friedrich Nietzsche and stuff like that, is to get rid of God. It's not about science. Science is biased as well. It's a religion. It's all, every, all science, okay, if you really are going to look at the, the, 
the looking of data, that's fine. But the fact is evolution is not science, it's a religion. It is a way of looking at scientific data with a bias that says, I don't believe in God. Does that make sense? So be careful. Whenever people say evolution is science, it's not science. It is philosophy. It is religion. Science is science. The looking of data is science. Okay? And so, so we look at the universe by itself then, just by itself. Well, when we go out there, this actually is a picture from the Hubble telescope. And it is a picture that if you go to the Hubble um, um, site, okay, and I've got, if you go up onto the web later on today when everything is loaded up there, I'll have links up there, okay, and you can go to NASA, you can go to the NOAA, and you can go to Hubble and stuff like that. But this actually is a picture of multiple galaxies in our solar system. Is that right? No, solar systems in our galaxy. Anyways, but these are multiple galaxies. So galaxies outside of ours. At least that's what, the, that's what they're defining. And if you understand what the universe is, the universe then has multiple galaxies that are rotating, like a CD changer. Within each, there are multiple solar systems. We are in the solar system called what, Christopher? Do you, you don't know? Come on, I thought you knew that one. It was an easy one. The Milky Way. Galaxy. Ah, see, I knew I was going to mess this thing up. Anyways. But anyways, and, and they, chain, they, they spin within. And so you've got this spinning within spinning all going on. And the fact is that in all that spinning and all that rotating, nothing ever what? Collides. Nothing ever hits. Everything is all in their order. And so even, Ben? They, they, so they've said. Okay. And really, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Okay. Um, no, seriously, I don't mean, I'm putting them off. I, I, that's interesting to me. I want to find that out. Um, and so, so in all that, though, it's, it's, there is order that's going on within that. And so the question is, how does all that come about? There has to be then somebody beyond the universe. And it's just an amazing thing to me. Secondly, I want to look at the Earth. Okay, that's just one segment within the Earth, or within, within it. And in the Earth, first of all, have you ever thought about the air that you breathe? It's something you take for granted, don't you? I mean, do you think about it every day? Boy, I sure hope there's enough oxygen in the air today. I sure hope there's not too much oxygen in the air today. There is actually 78% nitrogen and 21% oxygen in the air that we breathe, okay? Which is very important. Because if there were less oxygen in the air, it would be like being up on the mountains. And you would be oxygen deprived. When people travel too far up in the, the mountains, they have to wear what? They do. They have to wear oxygen masks because they need the oxygen. Okay? Is that right? Yeah, that way. But if there was more oxygen, what would happen? Everything would burn up. That's exactly. We would self-implode. We would self-burn up because we would, we would have too much oxygen. There is this delicate balance of what we need to survive just all around you throughout the day. And you know what? You don't even think about it, do you? What about global warming? What's at the very core of this global warming argument? Does anybody know? It's a thing called ozone. Now, ozone is really interesting because the ozone layer is located approximately 10 to 30 miles into the air. That's it within the stratosphere. And I don't remember the particulates of it right now, but it's, it's like three per thousands or whatever. It's just, it's, it's amazing. Some of you say, what's a particulate? Anyways, it's just three little minuscule pieces, molecules 
of this stuff compared to everything that's out there, okay? So there's not a lot of ozone that's, that's up there, okay? But it, it plays a huge role for us because it's the ozone that absorbs the many harmful radiation waves coming from the sun. You talk about the UV and stuff like that that we're talking about. The, so the ozone layer is absorbing all that. So it's very helpful to us. But you know what the problem with ozone is? It'll kill you. <laughs> so when it comes to the Earth, well, no, no, it just brings in radiation, yes, and that's why everybody's worried about this ozone thing going on. But ozone by itself will kill you. Okay? We can't survive with this ozone. And so this ozone layer by itself is, is a very delicate thing. So think about this. It has to be there in its 25 to 30 mile range above us to protect us, but it can't be here. It can't be above everything else, and it can't be below. It has to sit dedically in that balance. And isn't it amazing that it just happened to happen that way? That it just evolved through time, chance, and natural selection that it just happened to be this way? Well, say again. And it happens to stay there, yeah. And that it happens to have the, the proper chemical um, uh, composition so that it will float, if you would, in that proper spot that it won't leave. What about water? Do you ever think about water? I mean, most people don't, I mean, don't even know. I mean, somebody, somebody just tell me right out. What's the, chemical, what's the chemical name of it? What's it mean? Okay, good. Two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. Good. And, 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 so, and so as these, as these atoms are, are joining together, they're, they're sharing their what? Their electrons, right. So they have this electron um, happening, this thing happening together. They're sharing and they're bonding together. But there's also a thing with water called hydrogen bonding. Okay? And with hydrogen bonding, is, um, it's that thing that brings the tension surface. So we talked about when we talk about um, the, the, the being filled. Remember the, the Greek word polero, which means to be filled, and how we talked about being you can pour into a cup, and you can actually pour into a cup more than a cup will hold because it will actually bubble over. And it's hydrogen bonding that's in the water that causes it, it holds together. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's clinging so much to each other. Now, this is important because when, when we've got this um, cold weather and in, in water freezes, one would think that because of the density of ice, that it should do what? It should, it, I mean, not float, but it should sink. It should sink to the bottom, which means that now new water is exposed to the cold, which means that that water will turn to ice and it will sink and then the process continues so that after a month, if you would, of, of, of really cold weather, what would the river be? A total thing of ice. And so what would happen to all the, the, the life that's underneath? It's gone. It's dead. Right. Rather, we see with the hydrogen bonding, and it just happened to be, that, that the water has such a, a bonding strength, hold together so that the ice then will float. And do you know what ice floating on water actually um, does? Protects the water how? What does it, what does it cause? What does it actually make? A shield or, I mean, you're looking for, insulation. It's an insulator. Yeah. And so it may seem like it's cold, but honestly, if you were up north, I mean, 
you were going to make yourself a igloo. Yeah, exactly right. You're going to live in an igloo, a house made of ice, which in that house made of ice, they can actually have a what? Isn't that mind-boggling? I mean, you go ice fishing. Now, I've never done it, but <laughs> I actually drove up through Michigan in the wintertime, heading up the Grand Traverse um, for something. And as I went up through Pontiac and different places, I looked out, and there were ice fishers all, all on, on, the, on the lakes out there, okay? And they have their little huts. And in their little huts, on top of the ice, they have what? Fires. Y'all figure this one. So it's just an amazing thing to me. You know, it's like, you're going to melt the ice, and you're going to fall into it. This is nuts. And they, I mean, they got pickup trucks. And there's either pickup trucks right onto the lake, you know, and, and then cut holes, you know, you know, five feet from their pickup truck. Anyways, just nuts stuff. Anyways, but it's an insulator. So underneath the, the ice on the river, it's keeping the temperatures warmer so that all those cold-blooded creatures that time, chance, and circumstance just happen to bring them into that river, anyways, can survive and not be killed off in one winter. Now, understand, I'm not going to say this all the time. Maybe I will, but, um, but every single one of these things, if evolution was true, how many of these things had to just happen at the same time? All of them. I mean, get it? I mean, it's not just, you know, they love, evolutionists love to parse out one thing, little thing in particular. And let's talk about this one little thing, because over time, chances of natural circumstances, this could happen. Well, that's fine. This one little thing could happen. But we're not talking about this one little thing. We're talking about this thing had to happen at the same time. This thing had to happen. This thing had to happen. And this thing had to happen. And we're talking about this string of zeros behind the one to the tenth. The probabilities are just mind-boggling. No one in a sane mind would honestly ever. And so I always love to go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 says that faith is the, the evidence of things unseen. It's the substance of things hoped for, right? And by faith, we believe that the worlds were framed by the word of God, right? You can say this for evolutionists, too. Because faith is still the evidence of things unseen. It's the substance of things hoped for. Make sense? They, they still take the, the, the scientific data, and they just bring it into whatever they want. But they changed verse 3. Because by faith, they believe that the worlds were framed by a big bang. So that the things which have happened occurred from gases, which they have no idea where they came from. It's all faith. Do you get it? I mean, and it, I, to me, as I look at this and as, as I study this, and I realize it takes more faith for them. I mean, they, have, they are more religious than I am. I mean, they are more faith-based people than faith-based people. <laughs> Go figure that one out. Think about that for a little bit. Anyways, and so, so it's just an amazing thing what I believe God has designed. And what I think when people look at all these things, they have to look back to the order of it all. This is the reason we're doing all this. And once you see the order of nature, you have to realize what? There's got to be a creator. There has got to be a God. In order for all this to have happened, somebody if you would, had to design it. Therefore, there has to be this super power, this super being, okay, and we're not going to just say God right now, okay, because we're just going to work through this thing. There has to be this super being. There has to be this being that is above all of nature that I understand to, to have caused this to be. 
What about just the composition of Earth? Well, first of all, consider the exactness of the location of the Earth. If the Earth was any further away from the, from the, 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 moon, um, the moon, that's good, the sun, we'd freeze. If it was any closer, we'd what? We'd burn up. The exact location of the Earth is so incredible. And then you've got the cycle of life that's on it. I mean, we're, I'm, I'm skipping by even the spinning of the Earth and the axis. I mean, think about how the, 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 the Earth turns on its axis and spins around the sun so that we have all the different seasons. And, but those different seasons bring us this cycle of life where we have a seed, and the seed brings forth a tree, if you would, or a plant. The plant then has what? Fruit. And within the fruit, there's a what? A seed. And what is the seed going to produce? another tree or plant of like kind. You get it? There is no randomness. There's order to it all. And so I know that if I plant what is considered to be a cucumber seed, I'm not going to get a tomato. I'm not even going to get an oak tree, and I'm not going to get an Andrew. But think about it. If evolution was true, I don't know what I'm going to get. Time, chance, natural selection. I mean, this may be the, the one billionth year where it just happens to be that this seed is going to produce something else. You say, don't be stupid. That's evolution. But I look and I say, okay, I know I'm going to plant this seed. No, I'm, by faith I'm planting it, assuming there's going to be a cucumber coming out of it because I took it out of the what? The cucumber package. Anyways, and so they, you know, the, the, the seed company told me it was going to be a cucumber seed. So anyways, so, but I put it in there. Now, let's assume for a moment then for me, then I took it out of a cucumber. I said, these are really good cucumbers. I think I want more of these cucumbers. I don't want to pay Kroger's for them. So I'm going to take all the seeds out of my cucumbers. I'm going to dry them out, and I'm going to go plant them. And I'm going to hope that, that yeah, it's not going to turn out to be watermelon this time, you know, that they're going to be cucumbers. No, I know it's going to be cucumbers. I mean, that's how, if you want to plant fruit trees, just... Save some of your pits, save some of your seeds, and you can plant yourself fruit trees. It's an amazing thing. And so this cycle of life proves, how many of you have ever had a monkey? I mean, I know you probably took him to the zoo, so you didn't, you, you guys did, which, was it you? Oh, was, oh this, your sister's the monkey. Oh, you sure? They might vote and say it was you. Anyways. <clears throat> but think about it. But an evolutionist loves to say, an evolutionist loves to say that we are the what? We're the top of that evolutionary chain, right? That's why what? We don't see anything else because, I mean, you, you can't evolve any better than we are. I mean, this, this is it. We, we've hit it. We're God. Hmm. Anyways, and yet they can't find any of these transitional things. So think about it. If I have two monkeys, they're going to have a what? A monkey. Two gorillas are going to have a gorilla. Two humans are going to have a human. Two pigs are going to have a pig. Two cows are going to have a cow. Two dogs are going to have a dog. Now, I'm not talking about what the pigs are going to look like. I'm not talking about what the dogs are going to look like. I'm not talking about what the monkeys are going to look like. I'm not talking about what the humans are going to look like. I mean, it could look as bad as some of us. Anyways, but the fact is, I do know that they're going to what? Be in kind. That the seed's going to produce the plant. The plant's going to have the fruit. The fruit's going to have the seed. And it's going to go right down and back. And if you just look at that, you've got to know that there's an order. It didn't just happen. How many times do you think it would take a tornado to go through a, a junkyard that has all the parts needed to, for a 747? And as the, 
the, the tornado goes through it, that when it's done, there's going to be a 747 sitting in the junkyard. That would be time, chance, and natural selection, wouldn't it? I mean, just because it would be taking parts and ripping them together and, and hoping that they, they fit. And it's not just taking two pieces. I mean, you could take two pieces and have them land on top of each other and go, wow, look at that. What do you think the uh, odds of that happening are? That's one in a million. And look at these two pieces. They fell right in the same spot. Great. I'll do that a million more times. Do you understand? I mean, we're talking about things that are intricate. And we haven't, from my perspective, these are very intricate and these are very amazing. But these are way on beyond where I'm at because, you know, I don't live on the hub. Uh, and the, the space station looking back down to the earth, like the, the picture there, right? I, I, I know me, so let's talk about me for a moment. Or not just me, but let's talk about us, the human body. One thing that, you know, I've said that this is a year of change for Bob, and so one of the, the major things that Devin's already commented on today, today is a, a new occasion for me. And uh, look at that, I must have blinked just right, because I can read the one sign now. Anyways, um, I've got contacts in. Now, you know, I had to wake up at 4 o'clock to get them in. No, anyways. Um, actually, I, I didn't think I was going to, I found this, I was going to wear the bifocals. I've got bifocals. I said I never have bifocals either. And I've said I never put my finger in my eye. I can't imagine people putting fingers in their eyes. And now God's, God's chastening me because it takes me so long to get my finger in my eye. You know, he says, oh, you said you'd never do it. So work it. <laughs> Anyways, and so, so the eye is an amazing thing. And, and it's really amazing to me having these contacts, you know, and it's incredible to me that, that someone just found a contact laying on the ground that it had just evolved that way. And, and then they stuck it in their eye. And they, they, Did you know the, the contacts just evolved? That there was just, somebody just was just kicking around one day and, and they just found that. Now, isn't that stupid? We look at that and we go, what? No, come on, you egghead. Somebody had a what? invent it. Somebody had to design it. Somebody had to think the process through. Somebody had to plan it. Somebody had to put the process. Somebody had to mold it. Somebody had to, I mean, it didn't just happen. Now, if we know that about a contact, which is a piece of plastic or whatever it is, I'm not quite sure. It's an amazing thing to me. Praise God for the wisdom that he gave men. Why would I ever think the cornea that is on the, 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 the edge of my eye was something that just happened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and I think to myself, I used to believe this. I used to fight for this. How stupid was I? Probably not much more than I am now, but anyways, but now at least I know that part of it's real, right? I mean, now I, got, I look at that and I go, good grief. So the eye, let's look at the eye, okay? Now this is, this is a little technical here, okay? But I, I want you to flow with this, because this is fun stuff. This is from Dr. George Marshall, okay? And it says, the light-detecting structures within the photoreceptor cells, okay, that's where light is coming into your eye, okay? And, I mean, you realize you've got a bunch of water and a bunch of chemicals? It's dirt. I mean, you've got dirt. I mean, you didn't know what God did? He took dirt and he made man, right? And so men are just dirt. Anyways, but he took dirt and, 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 and water, and it's kind of mixed together, and all of a sudden, this dirt and water lets light through it. So that you can see things, and you know, I'm looking at you, and you're looking at me, you know? And we say it's an awful thing for people to be blind, you know, because they can't see. Well, that's, that's what we're talking about here. So these light-detecting structures within the photoreceptor cells are located in stacks of disks. Now read this. This is fun stuff. These disks are continually replaced by the formation of new ones at the cell body end of the stack, thereby pushing older disks down the stack. 
those discs at the other end of the stack are swallowed up by a single layer of retinal pigment epithelial. How do you say that, Steve? Epithelial. Epithelial. Every time I do that, I'm going to say Steve. Epithelial. Okay. Retinal pigment epithelial cells. These RPEs, and I appreciate the fact that he puts that in there, these RPE cells are highly active, and for this, they need a very large blood supply. Stop for a moment, okay? So you've got these photoreceptor things going on, okay? And they're in a stack, like a CD changer, okay? That's just kind of, I'm not very technical, so I've got to bring it to something I know, okay? And it's continually pushing down the stack. Well, if you're continually adding another CD, now we know from a CD changer, whether you have a 5 CD changer, or a 10 CD changer, or a 50 CD changer, that at some point you're going to what? You're going to max it out. You can't put any more in it. Okay? Well, if it's continually producing it, that means that I'm going to have a problem here because all of a sudden I'm going to have too many of these photoreceptor things happening in the stack. You know, my eyeballs are only so big. My sockets are only so large. Right? I'm, I'm going to have a, a problem. So, just time, chance, natural circumstances that, that, that the body decided at the exact same time that it was going to make these photoreceptor cells and put them in a stack and have them go down like this, that at the bottom of the stack that it would design these other cells that would do what? Eat, swallow, eat up the old ones. But in order to do this, it realizes that it's going to need a huge blood supply. It's going to need all these red cells to be able to accomplish all this. Well, how are we going to do this? Because now, look at the problem with this. The, these are called the choride. Unlike the retina, which is virtually transparent, choride is virtually opaque. Bad news if, you're, if you want to see through things, right? Because to see, it, things have to be transparent. So if this choride is opaque, you can't see through it. So it's opaque because of the vast number of red blood cells within it. For the retina to be wired the way that Professor Richard Dawkins, remember that guy that we talked about earlier, right, suggested, we would require, it would require the choride to come between the photoreceptor cells and the light. For RPE cells must be kept in intimate contact with both the choride and the photoreceptor to perform their job. So what Richard Dawkins has stated in his, in his book is that, that proof of evolution is that the eye isn't made just right that it actually is wired backwards, that it's wired backwards. And see, see, so if there was a God, God would have done it right. I mean, don't you say God does everything right, right? So therefore, if God would have done this right, he wouldn't have done it this way. Why would he wire the eyes backwards? Well, because if he would have, notice what it says, anybody who has had the misfortune of a hemorrhage in front of the retina will testify to how well red blood cells block out the light. If God would have done it the way Richard Dawkins wants it, you'd have all these red blood cells, the choride, which is opaque, between the, the photoreceptors and, and the light. In other words, as the light came into your eye, you wouldn't be able to see it because you'd have all these red blood cells in front of it. But God had to do it, what appears to us as backwards, which is great engineering, which means that there must be intelligence, for it to work properly. But man, in his wisdom, is suppressing the truth. So rather than seeing the superb engineering of it, he wants to use the that as, as a, a reason to, to prove that there's no God. But in his own ignorance, he, he defies himself. It's amazing stuff. Now what about the stomach? The stomach is an amazing thing. 
The stomach is made of a variety of layers, including the serosa, which is your outer layer that acts as a covering for the other layers. Then inside that, there are two muscle layers, middle layers that propel food from the stomach into the small intestines. That's very important, isn't it? Wouldn't it be amazing if your, if, if your body decided through time, chance, and natural selection that it, that it was just going to have the outer layer and the inner layer? I mean, we're going to talk about the amazingness of the inner layer in just a moment. But just think about it. If you know, all you have is the outer layer and the inner layer, you know, so you were able to digest food, but you didn't have the muscles in between to push it out. Well, that would be painful, wouldn't it? I mean, you know what it's like when you get a little bit clogged, you know, and, and, and you know, could you imagine being eternally clogged? <laughs> I mean, whoa, you know, bad stuff. So anyways, so it's important to have those two middle layers too. And then you have the mucosa, which is the inner layer, which is made up of specialized cells, including, tell me that, Steve? Parietal. Parietal cells, G cells, and epithelial. Did I say that right? No. Epithelial. I knew, I told you, I'm going to keep coming back to you on that word. It keeps coming up all the place, you know, these intricate cells, these epithelial cells. Parietal cells produce hydrochloric acid. I don't know if you've known this before. This has always been an amazing thing to me. They produce hydrochloric acid, a strong acid that helps to break down food. The acid in your stomach is so concentrated that if you were to place a drop on a piece of wood, it would eat right through it. In your stomach. And you're producing it. If you drank it, it could kill you. But it's in your stomach. You know, like when you, when you have reflux sometimes, and we call it acid reflux, and now it kind of burns in the throat. Do you know why? because you're, you're bringing up that hydrochloric acid. That's why, it, that's why it hurts. That's why it tastes awful. The G cells produce gastrin, a hormone that facilitates the production of hydrochloric acid by the parietal cells. So in your body, when, the, when you eat, the food comes down in there, it needs hydrochloric acid to break down the food into the proteins and stuff like that. Okay. Well, how do you get hydrochloric acid in your, in your stomach if you can't drink it? Well, your body just decided over billions of years and trillions of years that it needed something like this. And so your body went through this experimentation to where it finally got the hydrochloric acid in there. Now, you know what the problem with all this is? You'd be dead already. <laughs> I mean, you know, what if, what if it didn't have the lining that could handle the hydrochloric acid? What would the hydrochloric acid do? We're going to talk about this in just a moment. It burns you up. That's exactly right. The stomach is protected by the epithelial, is that how I say that right? Epithelial. Epithelial by the epithelial cells, which produce and secrete a bicarbonate rich solution that coats the mucosa. Bicarbonate is alkaline, which is base, and it neutralizes the acid secreted by the parietal cells, producing water in the process. This continuous supply of bicarbonate is the main way that your stomach protects itself from autodigestion, nice big word, which means the stomach digesting itself, in the overall acidic environment. So that's exactly right. If at the same time, time, chance, and natural selection, that it decided to do hydrochloric acid, that it, didn't it did this bicarbonate, you'd die. Again, remember, what are we talking about? Cosmological order, world order, that there is order in the cosmos, there is order in the universe, there is order in nature, there is order in creation. That as I look to, and I'm not even talking about a tree. We're not going to do that. We don't have time for all this. 
But I could, we could go to the trees and we could split the trees and we could get into the cell uh, structure of trees and stuff like that. I'm not even talking about my finger, but we could just even look at the finger and talk about the, 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 the relationship that there is from my brain to my finger. I don't, do you ever think to yourself, okay, bend finger, bend finger, bend finger. Do you say to yourself, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. You just take it for granted that your, your, the muscles of your body are going to do what you instantly are looking at, you know? And you ever hear the thing, wherever you look, you're going to what? You're going to drive. So if you're riding down the road, you start looking at the field, where are you going to go? You're going to go off the road. Why? Because eye-hand coordination, right? So as I look that way, my hand starts to follow. That's what we talk about with kids with, with Little League and with, with baseball and stuff like that. It's eye-hand coordination. I, don't, I can't look at my hands. I'm looking at the ball, and my hands have got to follow where my eyes are, are, are going to, to hit the ball. It's an amazing thing. I mean, and that just all what? Happened. It's nuts, isn't it? Isn't it nuts? Anyways, so human body. What about blood flow? This is exciting stuff, too. The oxygenated venous blood scent enters the heart's right atrium, travels from there to the right ventricle, and then through the pulmonary artery. Now, get this. It's the only artery to carry the oxygenated blood. Now, again, time, chance, natural selection. So the body decided it needed this blood flow. Remember, we talked about this earlier with the red cells up in the eye. Okay? So it needs this thing, and so it's got to figure out some way to make a factory to do this. But then... It forgets to do the, uh, the part where it gets the oxygen. Oops. All right, that experiment's done. Now let's wait for another trillion years to be able to, to, to get another one of these eyes that says it needs the red cells, and maybe we can get at the same time to get the heart, and maybe this time we can get the, uh, it to realize it needs oxygen, oxygen as well. So it goes into the blood. Then once the blood has picked up more oxygen, it moves into the cardiac veins and into the heart's left atrium. From there, it travels to the left ventricle and then to the aorta, which feeds the blood into the arteries that carry the refreshed blood to the body's various cells, which is important because your body needs that oxygen, not just in the lungs. It needs it in all your different pieces, okay, in all your different parts. And that's one of the things we were talking about again last night, Ben. We had a lot of conversation last night, didn't we? Anyways, we were talking about guys running and, and how that, you know, um, I think it was the Norwegians years ago, Scandinavians years ago, were accused in the Olympics of training up in the mountains and having a blood transfusion done. They had their blood taken out. And then when they went down to the lower altitudes, they had their blood um, pumped back into them from the high altitudes because there was a lower thing of oxygen, so it was requiring more oxygen. So when they breathed, they had more oxygen pumping into them and then pumping into their cells, which made them be able to work harder and run faster. That's all in theory. I don't know. Anyways, but they said it worked. So, so your blood is doing all this. Okay? Your blood is pumping all this, this oxygen. Now, that's not all it does. Oh, no, that is not all. No, that is not all. I feel like uh, Dr. Seuss here. Anyways, blood carries oxygen to all the cells in our body, a vitally important function to be sure, but it also carries away carbon dioxide. See, carbon dioxide is the byproduct of using the oxygen. When I breathe in, I breathe in this nitrogen and this oxygen, but when I breathe out, I breathe out what? Carbon dioxide, which is important to the plants. Uh, no, no plant here, but the plants, plants breathe what? Carbon dioxide. And what do they give off? Oxygen. Isn't it? Amazing how this just happened to be. Anyways, and so, but it also carries away the carbon dioxide, ammonia, and metabolic wastes, wastes as the one tissue that comes in contact with every other tissue in the body. It also allows cells to communicate with one another. Communicate through your blood cell. Isn't that an amazing thing? A communication network as well as a transport system. And it carries the first line of defense, our immune system, to wherever it's needed. 
The task of carrying oxygen is done by the red blood cells, which make up about 40% of blood's volume. As they mature, they give up their own nucleus. Get this. They give up their own nucleus. Can you survive without a nucleus? Well, apparently so. They give up their own nucleus in DNA in order to make room for hemoglobin, the proteins that it can attach to the oh-so-necessary oxygen. And that just happened to be. It just happened to be that there had to be a way for this hemoglobin to go, and the nucleus of the red blood cells say what? Oh, I'll sacrifice. I'll, I'll give up myself. And it just happened to be. Now, I want you to understand that this, all this about blood, especially, didn't come, this is not from Answers in Genesis. This is from medical sources. This is secular science, understanding the intricacy of our bodies, and yet suppressing the truth and still believing in a lie. How can you read this? How can you write it and not understand the order and the complexity that there is to this thing and know that there has to be a designer? And if there's a designer who's above all this, he has to be or she has to be or it has to be God. And that's not to put God down, but just the step-by-step -step process of knowing God. The first step to know God is I have to know that there, there is a, a God to know. And that's the whole point here. Get it? So, this is why I, I, I decided to cut it at this point, and it works out really well. we'll pick this, we're going to pick more of this up next week. Okay? But, in conclusion, I, I love Psalm 139. It says, For you formed me in my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance, yet unformed. And in your book they are all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. You're on that, that beach, looking at the ocean, saying, should I step in? Well, when you're looking down at that beach, just think about Psalm 139. God's desires and his thoughts and his love for you are more numerous than the grains of sand on a beach. And that's something. And, and, and that ocean is vastly more immense and bigger than that beach. How much there is to know about this God who loves you who before he ever created you, before he ever formed you in your mother's womb, knew that you'd be a sinner. Knew that you would be predisposed because of sin to serve yourself rather than him. That there would be deceptive forces who would want you to suppress the truth rather than to glorify his name and made you anyway. and desires for you to live with him eternally, not just as a subject, not just as a piece of clay, but to be adopted as a son of God. And just as there is all that order that we've looked at, 
I mean, and we just, we just, we didn't even skim the surface. I mean, we're just barely touching the surface of, of the cosmos. If all that is so faithful and true, the laws of nature continually happening over and over again, why should it ever bewilder me that God is faithful and true in all aspects of his being? And so what God has said, it will be so. And then when God said, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent, that his word is faithful and true, and that you can know him. It's not a Bob thing. It's not this Croatian side of Bob just kind of winning out over the German side of Bob. It's a mind-boggling thing for me that the God who created and we're still going to talk about God as a creator in a few weeks from now. <laughs> you know, we, get, we get to do this again, you know. I'll pick other parts of the body and stuff to talk about. So mind-boggling that this God wants me to have intimacy with him. Not just know about him, but to know him. So, are you, or you are fearfully and wonderfully made, created by the hand of God? Not only do the heavens declare the glory of God, but so do our bodies. So do our very beings, who you are. How often do you praise God for the intricate workings of your body? And how often do you look into the sky and meditate on the grandeur of God? It's one of the things I love about going to Canada. No lights. And I can look up into that, that, that spaciousness of sky and see all the stars and see the shooting stars and to see things moving. You know, Every once in a while I get to see the grandeur of the northern lights and it just looks like a big symphony happening. It's just a, a wonderful thing. How often do you consider the incredible order that God has established in the universe and given him the praise for it? Do you want to know God? A good place to start is considering the awesomeness of his creation. I challenge you. Get out in a dark spot one night when it's not cloudy and just look up into the heavens and count the stars if you can. Consider the vastness of the universe, the numbers of the galaxies that are, that are out there. Consider the, the planets and the, the rotation around the sun and how they just happen to, to flip out there and stay. Could you imagine if, when the bang happened, if things didn't just happen to, to go where they're supposed to, when the next bang might have happened? No one ever talks about that part of the bang, that, you know, after... So many billions of years there happened to be a bang, and when the bang happened, that everything just happened to stop where they were so that all the rest of this evolutionary process could start. We just assumed it all happened. But the Bible says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. You are an awesome God. Lord, truly, in my ignorance, in my foolishness, I believed and the, the haphazard uh, bringing together of things. Uh, just foolishness, Lord. I, I know you forgive me for it, I, but I just, it's one of those things I, just, I never can get over of my own ignorance. And yet, Lord, it's because of looking to myself and being alienated from the life of God. Lord, I pray 
for those that are here today as well. If any of them have been struggling ever with this, Lord, maybe they struggle now, maybe they've never thought about it, Lord, that they would begin to be in this process of knowing you better in this light, Lord, as um, that your order of your creation just declares that there is a God. The heavens declare your glory. Lord, if there's any here that today that don't know you, truly don't know you, Lord, that you would place it on their heart and they would call upon your name and that they, Father, would enter into this covenant relationship that you desire to have with them, that they would become your sons, your daughters, Lord, without rebuke. And they would be these sons and daughters in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom we can shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. God, I pray that you would be glorified in our midst, in our homes, in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to close with... Um,